All right, well, good morning. You can go ahead and be seated. If you have a Bible, please grab it and make your way to Matthew chapter 5. We are kicking off a new series this morning called Vintage Christianity. And as you think about vintage, there's probably all kinds of different things that come to your mind. Uh, one of the things I want to give an example of, and I'm not sure the pan on the screen right now, but this piano over here that we have is a vintage piano. It was manufactured in November of 1903, which is a month before the Wright brothers flew. So it gives you, I mean, this thing is well over 100 years old. Now, we've modified it, we've digitized it, it's got a keyboard embedded in it, but the outside, the shell, is vintage. And vintage, what the word actually means, where it comes from, it's it's actually a word that comes from uh, the wine industry. Vine, and then age, and so it has to do with, like, old wine, like how long it's been barreled or bottled or whatever it is. That's where the word comes from. But now we apply that word to a lot of different areas. And so you have vintage jeans, you have vintage t-shirts, you have vintage cars, uh, there's vintage video games. Uh, In the next couple of weeks, I think it's September the 6th, we're going to have a vintage boxing match. Uh, Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. So if you have pay-per-view, please invite me over. I'll be looking for, the, for that invitation in, in the mail or in email. But vintage, it's, it refers to like the original, all right? The, the classic, like what it's all about. And when you look at Christianity and we, we think about the Sermon on the Mount that we're entering into today, that is vintage Christianity. But in a lot of ways, it seems that today we've kind of moved a little bit from vintage Christianity. That it, we've, we've morphed, we've, we've changed, we've moved away from those things. In, in large parts, that's the way it seems as I look around at the world today. That Christianity, we've grown selfish. We've grown very me-centered self-centered. And so the primary thing that we think through is like, how does this affect me? How does this affect my family? How does this affect my interests, my opinions? And especially we allow politics to drive way too much of our thoughts as it relates to the church. We've in a lot of ways grown calloused, calloused to hearing that I could possibly be wrong. No, like we've grown callous to that. And we've grown callous a little bit to the plights of others. It stinks to be you, but at least it's not me. We've grown callous in a lot of ways. We're too sure of ourselves and of our opinions, which is a pride issue. In a lot of ways, humility is not seen as a hallmark of Christianity In a lot of ways, as you look around at the world, it almost seems like the hallmark today is anger and outrage. This isn't vintage Christianity. And while in some ways we stand markedly opposed to the world, as it it, it, rightly so, as it relates to different dilemmas and, and sin issues in the world... In other ways, we've absolutely conformed to the world in how we seek to go about contending for these things. We fight fire with fire. And we retaliate. 
In a lot of ways, we've left vintage Christianity. We've left Sermon on the Mount Christianity. We've left blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the poor in spirit Christianity. And we've left it because it's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. If, if other people are going to fight with fire, then I'm going to bring fire. That, that doesn't make sense that we would not do that. It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. And it's hard to live this out. As we read through the Sermon on the Mount in a minute, we're going to see like how hard, how difficult it is to truly leave these things out. But friends, we need to go back to endeavoring to live out vintage Christianity. Sermon on the Mount Christianity. From the lips of Jesus Christianity. But somebody's like, but, but Joe, that, that, that stuff in the Sermon on the Mount, that's crazy. That's like for a simpler time when people weren't as well educated and weren't as connected as we are in this social media age. And it's, you know, the, the idea to love your enemy and, and to turn the other cheek and to lead with mercy and peace and meekness and do that all the time. That's an impossibly high standard we could never even live up to anyhow. And on the one hand, you're right with that. As you look through church history, you'll find that it is the commands of Jesus that drove Martin Luther to the point of insanity before the Holy Spirit broke into his life. Because here, here he is, an Augustinian monk living in a monastery, and he reads and takes seriously the word and where it says where jesus recaps the the greatest commandment it says to love the lord your god with all your heart all your mind all your strength all your soul he said and says there's no way there's no way there 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 will be times when i don't love god with all my heart like i just know that and all my heart i just Know that. All my soul, all my strength, there's no way I can do that. And so if that is what it takes to become a Christian is to live those ways, then I am doomed and I am going to hell. There's no way. And so there he is, like going insane in his monastery room. Until he comes across, and I'm sure he had read it before, but the Holy Spirit ignites in his heart. Romans 1.17 that says, But the righteous shall live by faith. And then it clicked for him. It was the key for Luther, and it's the key for salvation. That we don't do things for Jesus to, to get Jesus to love us. Jesus did things for us. The law that we read that we fail at and cannot fulfill, Jesus came and he fulfilled it for us. And his righteousness is credited to, it is given to, the big Bible word is, or theological word is imputed to us through, those who believe, through faith. So the righteous shall live by faith 
It is by faith that we are credited with righteousness and we are now counted as righteous, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. So it's not so much what we have done or what we do, it's what Jesus did that makes us right before the Father. This is the good news of the gospel. Which means that there is no person on the planet who is unforgivable if they would repent and believe. This is not what you do, it's what Jesus did. And then your sins have been atoned for through the death of Jesus. So you have the life of Jesus, you have the death of Jesus, and you have the resurrection of Jesus that validates it all and is a foreshadowing of our coming resurrection, new heavens, new earth, Kingdom finally and fully here. Kingdom inaugurated when Jesus came. Finally and fully realized when he comes again. And so the Sermon on the Mount then. Isn't about what you need to do to get in or stay in the kingdom of God. It is a description of life in the kingdom of God. So it's got lots of prescribing words, lots of imperatives. There's like 50 commands in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to read the whole thing here in just a second. But even though it prescribes so much, much more than that, it's a describing. It's a description of what life in the kingdom is to look like. Jesus is describing to his disciples what vintage Christianity actually looks like. Which then makes us, it drives us to the question if this, Matthew 5 through 7, is a description of what Christianity is to look like, is this what my life looks like? When you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's like being exposed to the x-rays of Christ's Word. It plums the insides, not just the exterior, it plums the interior. It looks at the motivation. It looks at the heart level. There's no other section of Scripture that forces us to face ourselves like the Sermon on the Mount does. It's violent as it does this. It shakes us and it makes us sit up and take notice. Do I live this way? Like if I call myself a Christian, do I match these things? Or have I been distracted maybe? Have I gotten distracted by other things and they have captured my attention? They have captured my, my, uh, they, my mind and, and, and what I pursue and what I want. Or, or have I gotten lazy and apathetic and just kind of coasting? Have I been caught up in other things? And so the Sermon on the Mount, yes, absolutely drives to repentance. 
But kind of like I was talking about, you know, the law drives to the gospel and the gospel takes us back to the law. And the law takes us back to the gospel. And it's this never-ending cycle where we are forgiven. But now as we seek to live for Christ, we fall, we repent, we go back to the gospel for the forgiveness we need. And it drives us back to the law to try to live it. The Sermon on the Mount, it, 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 it's only, it, it, it's, its job is not only to drive us to repentance. It's also truly a call to live this out because we are citizens, those who have repented and believed in Christ, we are citizens of His kingdom. And this is a description of what life in the kingdom looks like. And so it points us to our daily need of grace because we can't, as we read it, you'll see, we can't do this on our own. We can't live like this. And so it crushes pride. It drives humility. And it drives us to Jesus again and again and again. And so, dear ones, as we get started in this series through the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to understand my, my concern primarily isn't for those of us in here, or Christians in the world in general, who strive to live out this kingdom ethic, no matter how imperfectly. My primary concern isn't with those of us who are striving to live this way. Striving is the key. We're seeking to live this and we may fail. We will fail at times. We will fall at times. We will stumble at times, but we repent. We get up again and we seek to go again. And where we fall, we repent and we get up again and we seek to go again. Turning from our sin, turning back to Christ is what repentance means. Over and over and over and over, making progress in holiness, no matter how bumpy the ride is, how slow the ride is, how jagged the... But like, a, like you want your stock market you know, deal to go, it, it may have jags and, and, and at times take a depression, but overall you trend the thing, it's an upward growth in holiness. That is the Christian life. And so my concern as we start this series on the Sermon on the Mount isn't with those of us who are progressing in that way. In fact, that's the aim of the Sermon on the Mount, that we would progress in those ways. My concern, as I look around the world, my concern is with 21st century angry American Christianity where many of us, based on our actions, not our stated belief, but our actual practice, have at best forgotten aspects of the Sermon on the Mount, or at worst, just think Jesus is flat wrong and outdated. And so the call to be merciful, that's only a call to be merciful to those I like. Those in my tribe. If it's a call, Jesus would not call me to be merciful to all people because, I mean, if I'm merciful to all people, they're going to take advantage of me. 
And if I turn the other cheek, I mean, we can't do that. People will take advantage of that. I'll be destroyed. Or love your enemies, seek to do good for them and pray for them. No, we need to squash them. If we don't, they'll take advantage of us. Friends, here's the reality. Of course they will. Absolutely they will. Jesus never promised that they wouldn't. And he still commanded this. That they killed him. As he turned the other cheek. And as he showed mercy. And as he showed peace. And as he showed love. And so the fact that people will do that does not negate the call of Christ on our lives to live these ways. This is what the life of a believer looks like. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' manifesto on the Christian life. This is what it looks like. When I was in seminary, I took one semester of philosophy, which should probably be outlawed. If you take one semester of philosophy, you should be required to take multitudes of semesters on philosophy because one semester is just enough to mess you up, right? You think you know things, you think you're smart, you don't re- you're not smart enough to realize how unintelligent you are. So that should probably be outlawed. But that's all I got, which may explain some things. But I got one semester. And by God's grace, since I only got one semester, I don't remember hardly anything. I remember two things. One, definition of a red herring. Two, a quote that my professor said. His name was Dr. Bruce Little. He was a brilliant guy. And uh, he, I went to seminary in uh, North Carolina and uh, the Research Triangle right there around UNC and NC State and Duke University. And he often debated atheists and agnostics in those areas. And uh, when you debate, sometimes, you know, things can get heated. And sometimes when it gets heated, people start hitting below the belt and they start taking personal shots. And you can want to respond and retaliate. And he would have opportunities where he'd argued or he'd talked to someone and, and man, he's got them right here and he could nail them up against the wall. And in his flesh, he wants to so bad for the things he said. They have said. But the quote that stands with me that he said... I haven't forgotten to this day is I would rather lose a debate than lose my testimony. I would rather lose a debate than lose my testimony. I mean, he would gladly, knowing he could, he could take him to, I mean, he could pin him. But he would gladly lose a debate to keep his testimony. And when he said that, what he meant by that is that winning at anything, a sale, a game, 
a debate on social media, a presidential election, being proved right on your view of the coronavirus pales in comparison to maintaining a Christ-like vintage Christianity before a lost and dying world who's watching. Pales in comparison. And so friends, vintage Christianity doesn't get into a tit-for-tat with folks. We don't fight fire with a different kind of fire because that just creates more fire. We don't fight division with different division because that just creates more division. We don't fight one form of darkness with another form of darkness. That just creates more darkness. And so, friends, gladly lose to people to live for Christ. The currency of the kingdom of Christ isn't victory on earth. It's victory in heaven. On earth, the currency is grace and mercy and peace and love of God and neighbor. And it's to this that we must return. We must return to vintage Christianity, to Sermon on the Mount Christianity. To where the merciful are considered blessed. Where the peacemakers are considered blessed. Where the poor in spirit are blessed. Where those who are reviled for the gospel are blessed. Where we love our enemies. Where we pray for them that God would bless them. Where we don't take our cues from how the world has treated us. I mean, just because... One person or one group of people does something, does not therefore make it right for us to do the same thing back to them when it's our turn. I mean, that's what you teach kids in kindergarten. I hit her because she hit me. Right? He started it. Christians are called to a higher standard than kindergartners. The world may fight and may live and may fuss and may stew in those ways. The nations may rage, quoting Psalms. Christians don't. And so in the midst of a pandemic, cultural unrest revolving around racism and police and crazy riots in Portland... Competing visions of school and and, and masks and a coming election that will be uglier and less presidential than anything we have ever seen. Friends, with all of this going on, it is imperative that we, as the people of God, would be set apart by our lives. Set apart. That's what it means to be sanctified. That's what it means to be holy. We are set apart. That our lives would be marked by a difference. And our, our lives would be marked by vintage Christianity. Because in these days, with all of this going on, we have the privilege of once again proving that Jesus is real. 
by taking him at his word and striving to live as he called us to. Striving to live out a vintage Christianity, which according to Jesus, looks like this. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your father, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you know, what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life span? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arraigned like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you... Be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs. Lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you if his son asks him for bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, 
give good gifts to those who ask him. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Friends, when you look at that, you see why we need Jesus. You see how we fail to keep these things. You see how this drives us to repentance and our need of Jesus, but still stands as our call to ever increasingly live these things out, to live out a vintage Christianity. And the brass tacks of it all is really that last line there in verse 29. For he was teaching him as one who had authority. Living the Sermon on the Mount, seeking to live out a vintage Christianity, means fundamentally you are bowing to the authority of Jesus. And when we aren't living that, we are bowing to the authority of something else. And so whose authority are you bowing to? What kingdom does your life reflect? May this day Regardless of wherever you may be, 
be a day where we seek afresh to live out a vintage Christianity. Where we seek afresh to live for Jesus. You may have been doing that. Awesome. Keep it up. You may have been coasting and drifting and grown apathetic. Well, today's the day to repent and to get serious, to live for Christ imperfectly. Yes, we won't do these things perfectly, but we strive and we repent and we go again. And we strive and we repent and we go again to make our lives match our lips and be a light to the world To live vintage. Vintage Jesus. Vintage Christianity. Even as it runs counter to the world and our workplaces. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we praise you for grace. We praise you for grace because we cannot, will not meet these in this fallen world. We are forgiven, yes. We've been set free from sin, yes. The penalty for sin has been eradicated because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and and the power of sin is ever increasingly being diminished. But Lord, we will not be free from the presence of sin until the finality of the kingdom for which we long. We know we've entered into the kingdom. It was inaugurated when Jesus came and through faith we are part of the kingdom, but it will not be fully realized until you return, Jesus, and we have the finality of all things and new heavens and new earth and no more sin and no more death and no more sorrow and no more tears. Come, Lord Jesus, we long for that. Until then, help us, God. Help us to reflect with our lives what we profess with our lips and help us, to be per, help us to be merciful and help us to be peacemakers. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to be salt and light in the world. Help us to be the aroma of Christ to people. Help us to deal with the currency of your kingdom on earth. And through that, Lord, lead people to trust you and become part of your kingdom. And help us to be folks who ascribe to you the worthiness you are due and seek to live it out with our lives. You are worthy, O God. And Father, I pray if there is someone in this room today who has not yet trusted in you, has not received the free grace of forgiveness, the free gift of salvation in Christ, where we are set free from the penalty of the wall, 
We are set free from our sin. We are forgiven. I pray that by your Spirit you would stir in their soul and be that pebble in their shoe that they cannot ignore. And you would open their eyes to their current plight outside of you as well as to the glories of salvation, the love that you have, and the gift of redemption and reconciliation you offer. We pray all of these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.